Hey Rodney, did you know Slack's been a part of the Ready for as long as I have? You mean like back in the Bryant Park days? You know it. Even when there were only a couple of us working out of a cafe in Midtown, Slack is where we came together to tackle the future of work. Over eight years later, we're fully decentralized across eight time zones, and we still do it all with Slack. That's right, because it's the AI-powered platform for growing your business, keeping your teams connected, and making work legitimately simpler. Now you can get up to speed on a new project with one-click summaries or find exactly what you need, when you need it, with an AI-supercharged search function. It makes your day-to-day easier and gives you the freedom to focus on what really matters, your future. Grow your business without the grind in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Brave New Work, a podcast about reinventing our organizations and the search for a more adaptive and human way of working. I'm Aaron Dignan, and I'm joined by my co-host, Rodney Evans. Hello, everybody. And on today's episode, we're going to talk about strategy, uh, how we plan and prioritize. And we are joined by Lauren Thomas-Tavold, the COO uh, at Kaplan Test Prep. So Lauren, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Tell the listeners just a little bit about Kaplan and your role there and kind of what the, you know, what's the day-to-day focus of, of your work? So Kaplan is one of the largest diversified education companies worldwide, and I work in one of the divisions, which is our test prep division, that most of you probably know as SAT and ACT prep. So we help students prepare for the standardized exams in their lives to help them um, you know, achieve what they want to achieve in their career. So that's generally speaking how we focus our attention and energy, although lately we've been thinking way beyond test prep (laughs) and really trying to think about, you know, how do we become a bigger part of individuals' lives and journeys over time and uh, help people through their career journey from, you know, the time that they figure out what they want to be when they grow up, so to speak, to, you know, the time that they actually get to achieve that. So we've been, in terms of strategy, really been thinking beyond test prep for a while now. Um, so it's a little bit about me and, and what we do at, at Kaplan. Nice. So uh, Lauren and I have had the opportunity to work together in the past, which has been awesome. And I sort of got to see some of your uh, wisdom and thinking around strategy and moving from longer horizons to tighter horizons. Now it sounds like you guys are even more focused on adaptive or iterative strategy, maybe just walk us through like, you know, three years ago, how were you thinking about this stuff? And how has that evolved as the world has evolved even before pandemic? Because, you know, things are changing quickly with technology and such. Oh, yes, that's so true. So, you know, we have historically been what we refer to in a very loving way, a button seat business. So we, <laughs> you know, help students prepare. And, <laughs> and the way we've done it is like most education companies, which, um, you know, in many cases is bringing people together to learn something from a teacher who stands in front of a class. And that has long been our bread and butter. And we realized, uh, you know, quite some time ago, probably five years ago, that the world was moving in a different direction and certainly in the, to a digital uh, format. Mm-hmm. 
So we have been on a journey ever since then to really try to create a great digital experience, but, but kind of staying with the consumer along the way. So as long as someone wanted to have that in-person experience, we still offered that. And then we were trying to also create this digital product. What we realized pretty quickly, though, is that technology is its own beast. And certainly an online experience needs to be thought about very differently than an in-person experience. Mm -hmm. And so we've been working on that as well. And, you know, trying to not take something that was meant to be a curricula offline and just put it online, but to think about the medium itself and the, you know, the experience itself very differently. So I'd say over the last three years, the notion of strategy has changed for us. The notion of, you know, what technology is and does for our business has changed for us. We've put it at the center of what we do. Mm -hmm. It's not at the fringes. Um, And that, that I think has been one of the biggest changes for us and has caused us to go to shorter cycle times. Mm. You know, we work in two week sprints as a technology team. And so if you're doing that as a technology team and thinking about OKRs and quarterly planning, you as a business have to align, you know, your overall business goals with that sprint planning process as best as possible. And we're certainly not perfect at it, um, but it is something we've been working on for quite some time. To that end, with with shorter cycle times, have you also found that the act, sort of the activity of strategy has become more decentralized or more centralized? Like, are more people involved in strategy or just more people involved in executing it? I'm just curious how the players have changed in your in your eyes in this, at the same time. I'd say we're more decentralized in strategy than centralized. We firmly believe that um, you need to understand at the edges of the organization what you're trying to achieve Mm -hmm. and get as many people as possible involved in that purpose or at least understand the true north, you know, so that everyone is kind of working in the same direction. Mm You know, and we're a portfolio business. So, you know, there's going to be just natural conflict in that because of prioritization, right? And the need to take your very limited resources and spread them over, you know, what appears to be like an insurmountable number of, you know, things that need to be addressed in any given quarter. And how do you deal with, you know, if you have more participants, more voices and some, you know, additional conflict, how do you think about dealing with the quieter voices or the fringe voices or the people that are saying things that are not the, you know, normal average wisdom of the organization? Like, how does that fold into the way the company deals with strategy and the way you try to shepherd it? Well, this has been interesting for us. You know, we've, if you can just imagine a company that's built on excellent teaching mm-hmm. and amazing facilitators Um, You know, that sort of your ability to stand up in front of a group and to speak off the cuff (laughs) has long been part of our culture. And yet when you bring in engineers into the equation and UX designers and others who sometimes are a little quieter about the way they approach their work, you have to be cognizant of that. Mm -hmm. And so we've tried our best to pull those who maybe are not as you know uh, comfortable with speaking up into the equation more, invite them to the table, you know, try to create some silence so that mm-hmm. you actually hear their voice, or at least 
a way to go about showcasing what they do for others to see it. Mm-hmm. Um, so the questions can be answered and asked. So we started um, actually when we were working with the Ready, started transparency meetings and continue to do that now. And I think that helps. I would not pretend that we're perfect at this by any stretch of the imagination, but we are cognizant of it and do try to you know, bring in as many voices as we possibly can into all, you know, into any of the strategy discussions. And I think that transparency is so important as an ingredient in the prioritization conversation. When I think about, you know, your role and, and even just what you just described, like you're a portfolio company within test prep, and then you're part of this larger ecosystem. How do you think about prioritization? Because as you said, there's a limited number of resources. (laughs) There's huge appetite. Everybody wants a new toy to sell always in every business at the tip of every spear. So as the person who's often helping to like balance that equalizer, how do you think about that? Well, first and foremost, I can tell you, we don't make everyone happy, which is unfortunate. <laughs> so there, you know, there's some people in, in any one of these decisions that, you know, feel like, wow, why is this not getting prioritized? Yeah. And I totally get that. You know, I, I think we do try to look at the business and, and the value to the consumer every quarter mm-hmm. and try to think through where should we put our resources this quarter? I mean, strategy strategy to me is often about resourcing. So you can decide where you want to go. You can decide what you would like to focus on. But at the end of it all, if you're not putting resources against it, you don't achieve the outcomes that you want. So a lot of it is in resource planning. So we spend a good amount of time with a smaller group, the more executive uh, group, I would I would argue, just talking through that Mm -hmm. and understanding the trade-offs and understanding the implications of the decisions. And sometimes we miss it. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes we didn't see a long, you know, a long tail on an implication of of a decision up front in terms of resourcing. And then we try to course correct uh, along the way. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's done on a quarterly basis. Um, We, we try to be as thoughtful as possible about the things that are most important to our business at the moment or to the customer at the moment and try to resource against that and then stay, um, you know, focused on that as best as possible for that quarter. Yeah. At times, you know, that's impossible. And so then you have to, you know, change course in the quarter. And we do that as well. I really like the point about resourcing because even though it might seem intuitive, I feel like it's often a miss in both directions. So I see the thing that you just mentioned of like, this is super important, but we're going to under-resource or underfund it or under-human power it. So like, is it really important? And then conversely, <laughs> I had a conversation just this morning where it's like, we're going to create a team around this thing this thing is not clear and we're not really sure it's important. But if you throw a bunch of resources at it, like they're going to make a bunch of work and and have a bunch of impact on a larger system. So I feel like um, I'm really glad you said that and just pointed out that like being so uh, thoughtful and specific and kind of surgical on the resourcing aspect is, is probably just as important as what you declare to be a priority. Yeah, I'd also say, you know, what we have learned, and I I hate to say this, but definitely the hard way, 
is that you need to start small. Mm -hmm. So we try to resource it with the least number of people possible Mm -hmm. in the beginning. And, you know, I think we fell prey to getting a big team behind it and cross-function. You know, we we really did that and found exactly what you're saying, Rodney, is that, you know, you're just work making, Mm -hmm. right? Versus really getting clear about what it is that you need to accomplish. So, we have a project right now, just as an example, that we're you know getting ready to go to market with in this COVID environment. We put two people against it, and those two people are getting farther down the demand generation curve before we'll even add another person. Mm-hmm. So we've tried to uh, approach everything in a hypothesis-based testing mode and small team mode without going to large teaming yet. Mm-hmm. But then be prepared, like I'm prepared on the sidelines by thinking, okay, so what kind of resources will we need against this? Should we find that it's worth it, that, yeah. you know, that it's worth it. And then quickly and, and as you know, nimbly as possible, assign resources to it or ask for people who are, you know, interested in it or we know would be interested in it or could contribute to get on board. Yeah, vote with their feet. So, you know. It is interesting. I sort yeah, of, exactly. I see two vectors here. One is strategy as kind of shaping the approach to current activities. So if we say something like we're going to be we're going to make UX more of a priority because we think user experience matters and so like do what you're doing but do it better. And then there's strategy on the vector of like what is actually our mix of activities? Like what are our bets? And so you can see it I think uh, often when we're arguing about or misinterpreting or misusing strategy, it's cuz we're not clear about which of those things we're really talking about. You know, is it something that's going to shape and inform the stuff we're already doing? Or is it something that's going to actually materially change the mix of the stuff we're doing? And so I'm curious how those two elements have played out, you know, over the last even year or two for you. Oh, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, you or at least we have found that we identify the problems to to be solved in some way, shape or form. And sometimes it is you know, broad, like UX, you Mm -hmm. know, which is then you'd have to put a team against that, that is a broad issue. And then sometimes it's a very narrow issue. It's a product issue that you want to get out to market. So then you would narrow up and you go, sometimes it's a platform issue, which Mm -hmm. is a broad and, you know, a, a larger team needs to put against, you know, be put against it in order to solve it. So I think that's part of what we try to do in terms of being nimble against you know, the problem to be solved and against the larger strategy. So it is about choices inside of that. And, you know, you don't always make the exact right choice at any given moment, but you certainly try to weigh all of those and then determine, okay, you know, where should we put this for the next six months or the next year? Mm-hmm. So we do some annual planning, of course, but then, you know, as you get into the work, it, it breaks down pretty quickly and then to your point, Aaron, you've just got to start making choices from there as to where you're going to spend your energy mm-hmm. and how. Yeah. And working inside yeah. of, you know, your business is what? How old is Kaplan? Like a hundred and something years old? You guys have been around for a long um, time. We're over 80 over years old. 80 oh, yes. Years old. We've been around quite some time. Okay. Yes. So yes. an 80-year-old business. So obviously there's going to be some um, trappings of traditional organizations floating around in, in the ether there. You're trying to do this more flexible, more nimble kind of planning. And you have these other constituents that probably are like, where's your five-year roadmap? And 
you know, to be frank, most clients that I work with are in a similar situation. Like there's always somebody who's going, where is your five-year roadmap? Even uh, if you're at the top of the house, like you are. So, uh, so what advice do you give to those people who want to just throw in the towel and say like, ah, fuck it, let's just make a three-year plan and, you know, know it's lies and go home. (laughs) Right. Well, you know, we are part of a much larger organization, and the larger organization is part of a larger organization. It's that, you know, it's, uh, it's turtles all the you know, way we're down. part of the Graham. Yeah, no, we're part of the Graham Holding Company. It's part of Kaplan Inc., which is part of, you know, we're part of Kaplan Inc. as Kaplan Test Prep. And, you know, the, the annual planning cycle for, you know, Kaplan and or Graham is incredibly important. Everyone needs visibility. Mm-hmm. You need transparency as to where you think you're going. So I don't um, begrudge that in the least. I think it's an important input to the process. Just when you get closer to the consumer, closer to the code, closer to the issues, you have to be prepared to switch and change quickly. Mm -hmm. And so we try to think of it in terms of a larger annual process because we run on an annual, annual budgeting cycle and we report into a larger you know, constituency and we have shareholders and whatnot. So we have to think about that. Um, But I find that the day-to-day work of strategy planning and the day-to-day work of strategy making is where you find you, you can get really nimble. Mm -hmm. You know, so you try to stay as broad as you can at the annual level and try to be as honest and transparent as you can about your business and your results and, you know, where you think the market is headed and your competitors and whatnot um, but then in the day-to-day, that's a very different application of strategy in my mind. It also just highlights the difference between the need for some forecasting at the top of a holding company or a house of, of businesses um, and, and actual strategy and then actual, you know, day-to-day tactical execution and sort of, you know, swimming and rowing towards that strategy. Like, those are all completely different things. And I actually think when I end up getting invited into big strategic or planning processes that are broken, it's usually because they're just, you know, confusing them and trying to do too much. And so it's like, yeah, everybody should have a forecast of like, what do they think the wind looks like for the next year inside Berkshire Hathaway? And then, you know, call us if it if the wind changes, right at, at at a corporate level. And then inside that, what are you actually doing, you know, to pursue your purpose and week to week, you know, day to day, what are you learning that's that's adjusting or steering the way you're deploying resources against that? I think it's always um, troubling when we start to tie down resources against that same annual or multi-year forecast and then pretend like we're being nimble. Right. Right. That makes, that, that definitely is harder, you know, because you, you do try to plan at least on an annual cycle so that, as you were saying, you can, you know, sort of report up and to make sure that everyone understands what you're trying to accomplish. Um, and then, yeah, that does change. And I think we have a pretty great management team in that, you know, when we have a monthly meeting or a quarterly meeting and we let them know how things are, you know, changing on the ground and then try to work within the forecasting that is necessary as, you know, that is more broadly understood at, at the larger Kaplan. So, you know, these two things do need to work together and it is critically important that they stay in sync. Mm-hmm. 
you know, where they're, when they're out of sync, I think, Aaron, what you were just describing is when they're out of sync is when often, you know, it, the problem happens. Yeah, or when we bring right? the wrong expectations from one to the other, right? Like, I want a forecast exactly. to be accurate. Exactly. I want a target to be ambitious. I want a strategy to be, you know, ambitious. And like, they're not all going to be the same thing. No. So one thing That's that I was very excited to talk to you about, as you know, from the A block is, uh, your role and your approach to this particularly. And, uh, you know, I work with lots of leaders in lots of categories and what I always noticed, Lauren, about your, uh, brain and how you allocate your time is that you do seem to me to be someone who is like looking at a broad swath of markets, looking at a lot of trends, looking around corners. Like I I talk to and deal with a lot of successful leaders who are a bit insular in terms of just understanding their competitors. And I always found you to be someone who was like very uh, you know, interdisciplinary in your thinking about strategy. So if we just assume that that's what people should be doing because they should, um, how do you do that? Like, how do you stay in that place where you're like thinking expansively and as you're getting data, like how are you personally making sense of what to pay attention to? It's a great question. Um, well, I guess the way I think about it is I start, first with a set of inputs. I think, you know, what is our company's purpose? What are we trying to do in the world? Um, You know, what are the consumer insights that I can glean from actual day to day, as well as what I think is happening in the competitive environment in the marketplace and whatnot. Mm -hmm. But there are others who are either grappling with or have succeeded in some of the same sort of categories of either strategy or change that I want to learn from. Mm -hmm. And so I started, I don't know, maybe seven to 10, maybe it was even 10 years ago, just calling people and saying, I'd like to learn from you. You know, can I have lunch and talk with you about how you handle digital transformation or, you know, how you got closer to your customer or whatever. And I found that people were very willing and eager to tell me Mm -hmm. how they did it. I mean, most people are very generous Mm -hmm. in sharing advice with you. So I think through who do I think are the smartest to learn from, you know, and I try to do as much research around, you know, about those companies and then try to find people inside those companies that I can talk with. And then I've joined a couple of groups that allow for that kind of peer-based learning, which I really appreciate, Mm -hmm. you know, that I can come there and put a problem in the middle of the table and say, can you help me solve for Mm -hmm. this? And having that level of input outside of education or outside of, you know, online education is really helpful because you can take some of the... Uh, you know, sort of the entertainment industry and what they've learned, you know, when they you know, stop selling albums or whatever it is and apply to your business. So, you know, really trying to link out to the people, the companies, the industries, the markets that I think I can learn mm-hmm. from. And then I try to find people in those markets to, to speak with. And, you know, that, that I bring back then into our work. Now, it, you know, it doesn't always mean that they're exactly the same, you know, or you can, you know, apply the exact same 
strategy that they used as an example, but you certainly can take pieces and parts of it yeah, and apply it and try it. Yeah. So it's a huge part of my own personal process. Like I have to go out and talk to people. If I don't, I feel like, you know, I'm just not, I'm not, a, I'm not exploring everything I should explore. And the two things that I think are so awesome about that. One is, it's like a very liberal arts way of thinking about strategy in the world. It's like, we need to learn about a lot of things that are important things in order to know about the thing that we need to know about. And the other is, um, I just feel like what you just articulated, you place a real value and investment on actual thinking and like thinking time. And I just feel like in a lot of people's days taken up by transaction and meeting and reporting and status updating and things like that, like a lot of candle power is wasted and it's not invested in going out to the world with curiosity and humility and asking those kinds of questions. So like, how have you not fallen into that trap that people fall into of just being always in response mode? Right. You know, in, in any company over 10 people, I think you're in a, you know, in a meeting management mode yeah. for sure, because, you know, we're just made up of people and people, you know, do come together and need to talk through things and need to align and all those types of things. So I think meetings you know, are important, but I think you hit it on the head. I mean, the idea of being both curious and, and very humble you know, I, I feel like there are so many that I can learn from that will inform our work that I, you know, I, I just try to approach it from that perspective and make time for that. Mm -hmm. And it's not easy. You can very quickly just fill up your entire week with meetings back to back. And there are some weeks that are definitely like that. But I find that if I could just carve out some time, you know, to to spend with others, carve out some time in these groups that I told you that I belong to, or carve out some time for reading, mm -hmm. and make that a priority, then you fit everything around that. Yeah. Do you find that that ebbs and flows? Like, do you have periods where you're more kind of outside in, and then other periods where you're just getting things done? And, and is there a natural rhythm to that for you? Yes, that is absolutely the case. I mean, when you're, you know, I, I find, you know, this, when COVID-19 hit, there's certainly a point in which everything became extremely tactical. <laughs> like you just got to like plow through it. Right. So we were running and I just give our team in incredible kudos. They were absolutely brilliant to a person at just executing and getting it done. And so there's no time for thinking. Mm -hmm. You just got to get it done. <laughs> right. And, you know, then you get through, you get through that sort of that frenzy, that chaos, and then you get to the other side of it. And then there is time for reflection. Yeah, yeah. Um, there is time to look back on something and think, could we have done that better? Mm -hmm. Could we have been smarter about, you know, identifying the implications of our actions? You know, what can we learn from what we just went through and try to do it better next time? And so there are moments, it's definitely an ebb and flow. There are moments of just heads down, everybody get going, and then, you know, moments of pull back and look at where we've come from, look what we're going next. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that is very natural and normal. 
you know, obviously the environment we're in now, there's nothing natural and normal about it. So it'll change a lot, I think, over the next uh, year or so. And we'll look back on this time you know, with some interesting reflection for sure. Speaking of, of COVID-19, since we can't go an episode without talking about it right now, um, I did have a question for you about how it has accelerated or decelerated the pursuit of your strategy. So like, in what ways did it maybe change your strategy? In what ways has it accelerated or decelerated your ability to get that done? I think that's a really unique kind of moment and intersection between, you know, strategy and the collision with reality that would be cool to hear about? I think for us, it has accelerated our strategy. I was teasing with somebody the other day that it's, you know, seven years and seven days. (laughs) Um, And March was the longest year of my life. You know, it's been crazy how uh, so much has happened in just a short four week or three week period. So I think we've accelerated strategy. We have not changed strategy. We are you know, on a mission to create really outstanding digital learning experiences for students. And so we've been very focused on that. But because of COVID, we overnight shifted everything online. Yeah, you underlined the word so digital in that strategy we, in about yeah, 24 hours. There we go. Right. And then all of a sudden, poof, we're here. And so now this is a moment of stepping back and thinking, okay, so now that we're here, where can we take this? Um, So I think that's where you were talking about sort of the ebbs and flows. So we were in this sprint for four weeks. Now we're stepping back and we're beginning to plan out, you know, the next. Now, at the same time, the world has changed and consumer behavior, we can see change right before our very eyes and test makers are making different choices and whatnot. So we are very, very quickly spinning up other products and services that we think would be useful to our you know, students and consumers or um, the companies that we work with or the schools we work with right now. Sure. So we're trying to be, you know, very fast uh, at, you know, getting out some new products and services, while at the same time thinking more strategically about what's going to happen over the next 12 to 18 to 24 months if a vaccine doesn't appear on the landscape. Then what? So, so we are trying to think through those scenarios as well. So I kind of want to dig deeper on the seven years and seven days thing for a second because I think there may be a, a lesson hiding in there. You have been you know, I'm sure internally arm wrestling the, you know, the system, the culture, the norms of what we do and how we do it for a long time, as you start to navigate towards a more digital environment, suddenly an outside constraint just overnight forces it. Have you noticed anything about why that worked or what it felt like or how to replicate that without having to have a pandemic on the loose? Like, it seems like there's something there if we can just shift and tack the boat that fast, um, maybe there's a lesson to draw. Have you thought about that? Oh, we have thought about (laughs) it. We have talked about it most every day. (laughs) You know, part of it is um, one of my lessons has been very clear decision-making. And once you make very clear decisions and you enlist everyone in that process, it happens much faster. So, you know, I was telling, you know, Aaron, you earlier, I woke up at six o'clock in the morning and realized we needed to go online in 24 hours. And so being able to just be that decisive, say, we got to be online in 24 hours, Mm -hmm. 
let's start the engines and then engage everybody in the process. Everyone agreed Mm -hmm. very quickly. It was like, yep, we're in. Um, And then you can move mountains. It is fantastic. So now the question is, how do you create that level of constraint uh, without a pandemic, mm-hmm. right. right? To really move faster. So we've been talking about that quite a lot. I I think we are trying to be um, clearer in our decisions, not let things linger, you know, not not leave the meeting without the decision being made. Uh, we are trying to go faster and getting even more people involved earlier to say this is the direction that we believe we need to head. You know, everybody opine now and then let's move. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's beginning to change a bit of the behavior and candidly being all online and all in a zoom room or all in a uh, hangout or whatever has helped Mm. because you have sort of an equal playing field Mm -hmm. where you've got everybody together in the same sort of constrained environment, all very focused. And so that's made me reflect upon how do you run meetings, brainstorming sessions, et cetera, just more effectively going forward based on what we've learned about this, you know, COVID crisis moment. Nice. So I think there will be a lot of very great learning that comes out of this and a lot of, you know, and behavioral change overall for many companies, including ours. Yeah. And one thing I was chatting with a former client from a different company the other day, um, and she was saying to me that like nothing has tamed the egos historically quite like this crisis has. And it's like, it's a thing where I I think most people act rationally and most people are acting in the best interest of themselves and their teams generally. But it feels like, um, it feels like part of this is urgency and part of it is existential. And then part of it is also, it's just forcing us to be really collectivist. It's like, because so mm. many of these things now are about like survival of your company and our company and all the companies we work with, all of a sudden it's not like my project or my customer or my thing or my idea. It's like, what do we have to do to weather this in a way that is mm-hmm. tenable? And so I'm wondering if you're noticing some of that behaviorally, if, if people are sort of like leveling up altitude wise in terms of doing what is right. Well, one of the things that I, I have seen happen from a behavioral perspective is that the uncertainty of it all mm-hmm. has leveled the playing totally. field. Immediately. <laughs> totally. Immediately. There's no Nobody one that knows. knows. <laughs> no one knows. We're all stupid. <laughs> right? We're all, like, yeah. we're all in this we're together. All we're all trying to figure it out. And so we're all flailing and we're all just second guessing what the virus is going to do. Is there going to be a vaccine? When's there going to be a vaccine? How's behavior going to change? When are we going to open up? Blah, 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 blah. Um, so I, I think that's been a great equalizer. Mm-hmm. You know, I would not, you know, for us, I wouldn't say that maybe it was as much ego oriented as it was, you know, you're just trying to second guess the marketplace. Yeah. You're trying to like track with your consumer. You're trying to make smart decisions. But what this has done is just put everyone in the same boat at the same time. And we're all trying to figure it out. Went to a, a session the other day with a consulting firm that we have used in the, in the past. And they talked about rethinking. You're not restarting, you're rethinking. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's exactly right. We have to rethink everything. And everyone's in the same boat. Mm-hmm. There's not anyone 
who knows? Mm -hmm. So there's no one who is saying, look, follow me. I've got all of, you know, the knowledge here. (laughs) We're all looking at each other and going, all right, what do you think? Is this the best idea? All right, let's do it. Let's go. Yeah. That has changed things. And I think that's been super fascinating to be a part of uh, or to experience with the group. That's really cool. That seems like a really poetic place to draw things to a close, actually, to me. If we can stay in that mindset and stay in that kind of beginner's mind, uh, think of all the things that could happen next. So, Lauren, um, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you. I really enjoyed it. And Rodney, always a pleasure. It was lovely. Uh, And for our listeners, if you are digging what you're hearing and hearing our wonderful guests like Lauren, please do leave us a review. Uh, I got another one today from EJ and it was awesome. So uh, please do that or forward this show to somebody who needs it. A quick tip of the hat to Taylor Marvin for making us sound good as he does every week, sometimes multiple times per week. Brave New Work is produced by The Ready, where we help organizations around the world change the way they work. And you can get in touch with us by emailing podcast at theready.com. If you have questions, if you have ideas, guest ideas, topic ideas. Um, And as for you, thanks for listening. Now go change something. Mm